Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast with Joe Lavelle and Dr. Glenn Winkle. On today's episode, number 41, we are continuing our conversation about strength training for the master cyclist with Menachem Brody, the guy behind Human Vortex Training and the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. In our first discussion, episode 38, Menachem shared his thoughts on how an older athlete can use strength or resistance training to become healthier, stronger, and more resilient in their endurance sport. In this follow-up episode, we dive into the details on how to organize the strength training calendar within the cycling training calendar to optimize for getting faster and stronger on the bike. So listen in as we walk step-by-step through the calendar and discuss the methods and the benefits of strength training as integrated with cycling training, and we discuss the tricks to get it right and to avoid getting overtrained or getting too tired to perform well on the bike. All right, let's talk to Menachem. All right, everybody, welcome back, Menachem. Yes, indeed, welcome back. Good to see you. Good to be here. I was gonna say, good to have you guys. <laughs> we gotta do that one too. You guys gotta come <laughs> up and come <laughs> That's the problem when you have your own podcast and then you're a guest, your uh, talking rhythms get all messed up. So uh, we'll forgive you for that. For the audience, we'll, uh, we'll just tell you that having listened to the first episode, came up with four things that we wanna hit on here today. The four things are, what? Why year-round strength training is non-negotiable for the master's athlete? Number two, what is important for getting the most value for your effort? You're burning energy, you're burning time, you want to get a payoff. How do you do that? Number three, the importance of posture. For me, I, you know, I just like standing up straight, but I'll bet there's more to it. And then number four is core training. What is that? What, what is really important about core training? And, I, and the more I say that, the more I see that these things probably all fit together very tightly. So we only have a little bit of time. Again, Menachem, let's get going. Number one, the calendar. Yeah. I was going to say, how do you want to break that down? Do you want to do uh, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere? I guess we'll stick with the U.S. Uh, <laughs> side of things. <laughs> Let's just assume that it's all Northern Hemisphere, okay? <laughs> all right. Well, it's a good podcast, right? You got to... <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else, you'll just have to imagine. If you're down under, the toilet's flush the other way. Just kidding. Great Simpsons episode. Um so for the, the calendar, uh, in our last episode, uh, when we spoke, guys, we went into detail about how there's five stages of, of strength training throughout the training year and how the vast majority of us, unless we're world tour pros or, or UCI continental pros looking to go world tour, really need to go through four of them. And those are anatomical adaptations, which is stage one, which is anywhere from three to six weeks. This is where you're doing low to no weight, uh, basic movements, the fundamental five plus one, push, pull, squat, hinge, press, run, restability, and you're just building up your reservoir, so to speak, and, and getting, you know, kind of getting things to move a little bit better and, and getting back on track, as well as refilling the mental uh, reservoir, which we didn't talk about. And uh, we're going to stay away because we can totally go, you know, 18 hours deep in this. Um, the second stage is, yeah. you got it, hypertrophy. We've got to grow the muscles. And a lot of people, let me tell you this, uh, unless you are very physically and genetically gifted, uh, I hate to disappoint you, but gentlemen, you are not going to look anything like the cycling version of Arnold. And by the way, he did ride his bike for yes. cardio. So that's a very hard bar to get up to. Um, 
to put on that type of muscle mass, either you've got to be uh, taking some, uh, you know, Russian scientist era 1970s concoction of things or only doing uh, heavy strength training for bodybuilding uh, and really not much else, you know, very low level cardio. Uh, number three is max strength. That is the third stage. And I know uh, this is where we're going to get into uh, a main staple uh, to go against the grain for most of the master's athletes out there. And it's not a good idea to go into the gym and lift heavy things, unless you would like to come and hang out with me as your practitioner, a McGill Method practitioner to help you get out of a back injury, in which case I would love to take your money for being silly and doing things that you just shouldn't quite do. Um, and, you know, this is where a lot of people get lost uh, in the common uh, flow of things. And this is uh, James Clear talks about it in Atomic Habits. Uh, BJ Fogg talks about it in his book, um, Tiny Habits. There is, we follow people of power and we follow the crowd. Those are our two biggest influencers. And aside from that is people that we know. So for us as masters, cyclists uh, and triathletes, we've got all of those working against us right now, where everybody is saying, lift heavy stuff, go to the gym and lift heavy. It's a recipe for disaster. And I've, I'm very happy when I don't have my phone ringing uh, or, well, phone ringing, my email blowing up with people looking for back pain help uh, because they went to the gym and lifted heavy things. Yeah. It's, it's a very basic uh, precept. And in our last episode, we talked about uh, the question that came up in the, in the, uh, free group that I have the HV training, uh, strength training for cyclists and triathletes group where, you know, someone asked, well, for a master's athlete who's following, you know, 50 plus who's following, um, you know, the, the vortex method, you know, how important, uh, or when should I start adding back strength training again? It's like, well, if you did it in base period, you should be doing it year round. Uh, but before we get into that, the last one we should all go through, number, stage number four is conversion to sport-specific strength, and then stage number five, which the vast majority of us don't need, is maintenance. So for the master's athlete, the calendar should look something like this. We're recording this here, you know, the middle of September. Now is the time that we're either going to take a week or two off uh, and do something else. Go hiking, go swimming, go horseback riding, although not so much, um, or don't do too much because that's a lot of strain on the knees. This is a time for you to kind of shake off and, and do other things. Once you're done with that is when anatomical adaptation begins. And that's three to six weeks. And everybody goes through this in some aspect. For some athletes, it can be as short as two weeks if they've been strength training year round and are moving well and feeling well. For others, it'll be closer to eight weeks, but three to six is the average. During this period, we just focus on learning how to move. And this is where most master's athletes are going to gain probably the most out of their, their time in the weight room because you're going to learn how to squat properly, how to deadlift or hinge properly, how to bench press properly. So push, pull, squat, hinge press, rotary stability. You're working on all of these and you're really focusing on what does this feel like? Um, so this was back in Corona. Uh, we had the 60-day movement mastery program, right? That's all that it was. It was a program for April, May, and June for anatomical adaptations. And nearly every single person who came into it was blown away as to how hard it actually was to do it right. They're like, I see the video and I think I'm doing it, but then I watch myself and I'm not even close. And this is really where so many master's athletes can really dive into performance enhancement, but it's so easy. Why would I do it? You know, it's, it's kind of like... Um, so you're not talking about lifting a lot of weight. It's more just about the 
with doing the movement properly. Learning what it feels like. Yeah. So this is where you're going in and you're taking the time to understand where is my body in space? Where do I think my body is? And where is it actually? What muscles are working? How is the weight moving? It doesn't mean you're sitting in, in the gym and taking an hour and a half for a half hour workout, but you're just going in and paying attention to how you're getting the movement and where you're getting the movement from. So for example, one of the things that I find uh, I use probably with 95 to 97% of my athletes is a front squat. You know, a lot of cyclists think back squat. I think we talked about that last time where, you know, you put the weight on the back and it's already disadvantaged because of your riding position. Well, the front squat's a knee dominant squat, which is our sport of cycling is knee dominant, not, not hip dominant like basketball is for jumping or football or track and field. If you do a back squat, it's going to feel different and how you need to put the force down will feel different than doing the front squat. So we have the goblet squat, which is in a family of a front squat, the weights in front of you. So you're just learning how, do, how does it feel for my body to go through these movements? What do I feel working? And this is where we work on, uh, for the squat, it would be uh, spreading the floor. So pretend your feet are planted uh, with the toes pointed straight ahead and there's a string tied between your big toes. Just one contiguous string. What we want to do to spread the floor is we want to kind of torque our feet out a little bit without actually sliding our, our feet so that the string has some tension on it. And what that's going to do is light up your glutes, your hamstrings, whatever people, everybody now refers to as the, the posterior chain is going to light up because you're now using your glutes to do the movement as opposed to your quads. Um, and it changes. So as you go through the training year, the sensations and feel for the exercises can change. And that's where the anatomical adaptation is important. You're establishing the mind-muscle connection and learning how uh, to connect your body. So I know last time we said we were going to have uh, uh, you guys go through some exercises. We, we can try it or I can just send you guys the clips, uh, either one. Yeah, yeah. Links, links for the show notes I think will work better for the audience. Okay. Um, so the one that I, Glenn's like, oh man, Dr. Bullet there. <laughs> uh, the one that I really like is, uh, is prone glute activation. And this is where you lay on your stomach. Your chin is, uh, uh, on top of your hands that are stacked and you just try and squeeze one glute at a time. Let me tell you, Glenn, I haven't had that much fun since I went to Kennywood the first time when I was like 12. <laughs> <laughs> watching a cyclist try and get their <laughs> glute on one side to activate, right? It's, I, I remember it's funny. It, it, it's hilarious <laughs> because it's a, such a basic thing. You're supposed to, your glutes rec recruited and are required for 35% of the power production on your pedal stroke. But most people can't, can't fire it individually. Mm -hmm. And so why um, is it a cyclist can't do it? Cause we sit on them. We don't use them. When, when I was, um, coach with uh what's her name the speed skater she kept telling me to activate my glutes and i looked at her like how do you do that because i don't i sit on them i don't use them in cycling we tend to be quad dominant not glute dominant so when you're not using them in cycling you're missing the power that you oh yeah had from you them? certainly are yeah okay yeah 35 percent of your power for your pedal stroke uh roughly it comes from should come from your glutes uh, and that's uh, Surat Institute, uh, uh, International Cycling Institute has in their um, booklet. Uh, I'll see if I can take a photo of it. I don't know if I actually, I don't know if I can do that. But if you look online, the power for the pedal stroke online, if you Google, I'll see if I can, I can dig it up for you guys. Um, but essentially, it, that's where the, the pedal stroke power should come from. But most of us are quad dominant. 
So this is where, uh, right. you know, we have essentially divots. A lot of cyclists have divots on the side of their glutes. Uh, I have it pretty bad, especially right now. The last couple of weeks, my son started uh, nursery. We went to parent-teacher night, and then one of the kids' parents had tested positive, so we had to be in quarantine. So we were laying around the house, you know, entertaining a one-and-a-half-year-old, which is always fun in a three-room apartment. Um, but these are things that you look at a lot of cyclists at rest stop, at coffee stop, and you see – you, you know, don't be a creeper, but you're like, wow, the, the glutes are not round and full. And that's because the glute max is on the outside, but underneath your belt line, there's the glute medius and glute minimus. And those are used to help stabilize our hips as we go through. And as cyclists, we're going through a partial range of motion. Now we're getting a little bit uh, into the weeds here for the details, um, but really what we're looking for here is essentially, the anatomical adaptations is your opportunity to make mind-muscle connections. So the, the prone glute activation is a fantastic exercise and just basic movements. So a tempo goblet squat, three, one, three, one, three seconds down, one second pause at the bottom, keeping tension in through the glutes and spreading the floor, three seconds to come up using your glutes and your quadriceps, one second at the top and then right back down. Um, a Kettlebell deadlift not to floor with a very light weight will help you learn how to squeeze oranges, so to speak, underneath your armpits. Keep your chest up. That way you're not rounding your back and moving from the spine. I just did an assessment on a, a longtime client of mine. She's in Bolivia right now um, uh, with her husband finishing up uh, uh, work. And, you know, she's still very spine dominant. She doesn't have a hinge. She's a spiny hinge, hinger, if we want to call it that. It sounds derogatory, but that's what it is. So she bends her back instead of hinging at the yep. hip? Yeah. And okay. that's that's very common in cyclists. So the anatomical adaptation, uh, as adults, a lot of us have our ego get in the way. And if you want to be successful in the weight room, in any sport, you need to check your ego at the door. You know, I learned that very young okay. with my powerlifting. I told you guys about how I gave myself a back injury, and I deserve that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't check my ego at the door and saying, you know what? I have a coach. My coach knows far more than I do, and I'm some you know 17-year-old punk who thinks he knows what he's doing because he read an article of research online. Um, yeah, yeah. So the anatomical adaptation, okay. you know, take your time. I just got off a, a call uh, from one of the students for the uh, strength training certification for cyclists, and um, – also named Joe, actually. Uh, so uh, nice. he and I spoke. I like him already. <laughs> He's a great guy. He really is. Uh, Joe's, a, Joe's a good name. We got a, we got a theme going here. Glenn, your middle name's Joe, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so the anatomical adaptation is very tough. And Joe mentioned this and, and said, you know, I've, I've got these athletes where I'm taking them through anatomical adaptation six to eight weeks. And the patience isn't there. They're like, when can I pick up a weight? Well, this is a really big time for many of us as master's athletes. And some of us may go a full year without really getting out of that anatomical adaptation stage. And this is exciting, uh -huh. right? So this is kind of like we're getting rewards for the least amount of work. We're, we almost feel like sloth. Like uh, Charlie Munger just dropped, what was it? $200 million or something on Alibaba and went uh, 200 bucks or something. And he hadn't bought a new stock in like 10 years, right? He did nothing, 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 save, save, save. And then all of a sudden an opportunity presented itself, boom, jumped on it. That's what anatomical adaptation is for us as master's athletes. We don't need the weight stimulus to improve. If we've got a dysfunction, you're saying that just getting that functional movement is better than getting stronger 
in a dysfunctional not way. even if you have a, a not just if you have a dysfunction if you're not if you're moving well the anatomical adaptation allows you to refine and groove these movement patterns right so doing that for four uh, to six weeks and and for very few athletes, it can be with very lightweight. If you have a training history of three to five years, uh, you're moving well, you had a good season, you didn't have a lot of uh, uh, trauma, anything of that nature, uh, you may be able to do it with, you know, eight kilos, uh, male or female. You know, your strength training year round, as, as we're going to talk about or are talking about here, um, that's anatomical adaptation still. But it's essentially you're making mind-muscle connections to refine your movements. So you can see fantastic, fantastic, fantastic results just from those things. Well, that's great. And so this is this, uh, the season is over and you'd said, take a break, short break, and then move into this, this phase, which is called anatomical something or another. Anatomical adaptation. Right. So it's now for, for Northern hemisphere athletes. Yes. Well, that's great. I don't know if we want to move on to the next one, or you want to talk more about this phase. We can put more information in the show notes. You have mentioned a few specific exercises that you thought were good ones for people to use. Yeah, no, that, that, that's pretty much it. This is the one I'm going to spend the second most on with uh, hypertrophy being the second or the first. Because when we get into our training, strength training is skill training. That's all it is. It doesn't matter how much weight you're putting on the bar. It matters how you're moving it. So I can change the results of an exercise by changing the cue. And a lot of people, you know, even even uh, well-meaning coaches, they learn one cue and that's what they go with. I did that for about 10 years. And then I started to get into real performance. I got back into powerlifting, found another coach. I'm like, wow, this is freaking amazing. That's a completely different squat than I've ever done before. And it was just a change in a cue. It's the same thing with your athletes. And this is what a lot of people miss in the anatomical adaptation is you got three to six weeks, you can try different cues for two weeks at a time. But as you're going through that, you're figuring out what works best. But don't skip this. Don't rush through this. There's a lot of gains to be made there, especially if you haven't done strength training throughout, throughout the season, you're just getting ready to get started. And, you know, try the prone glute activation, check out the, the show note uh, and the 3131 uh, squat because these are things that will really help ring the bell of like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought it was. Um, you know, I'm working with a master's athlete out in uh, the Northwest, excuse me, the Midwest, North Midwest. Uh, and we're still working on 3131 goblet squats and keeping his chest up. You know, we've, we've gone to a different variation now. And we're seeing a lot of success with that, but we're still doing the same dang exercise with the same dang weight. And he's still seeing benefits. We change it up a little bit, right? Because right. you have the diminishing returns. We've got to change things every six to eight weeks um, just because the, the the organism will adapt to that. But that's where we get into hypertrophy. So the 3131 goblet squat also allows us to learn how the body's moving, but it gives us some tension and stress onto the connective tissues. And that's really what the hypertrophy uh, stage is about, is building uh, the muscle's ability to rebuild itself, to become more resilient, uh, to be able to have that longevity, to be able to make it through the season, and of course, to increase uh, the muscle density. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to blow up like Arnold. If you happen to be genetically gifted, like my friend Jordan uh, back in Pittsburgh, this guy would do two sets of 10 with maybe 15-pound kettlebells for shoulder press. If he did that for two weeks, it would look like he's wearing shoulder pads. Clear genetic freak. Cool. <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, so he just didn't do shoulders that much. He'd do like one set of 15 at the end. But that's a such a rare case, right? And yeah. 
if you are that athlete, fantastic. Recognize that and just, you know, tell your coach or just don't train shoulders as a, a C1. Do it at the end, one set of 10, just enough to keep it strong enough for the whole. But for most of us, the hypertrophy is going to start off uh, RPE of, of six and seven. And we're going to start off with two sets of eight to 10. And just to clarify, uh, anatomical adaptation was what we did after the end of the season, after a short break. And then, and that was four to six weeks, uh, maybe eight weeks. And then we migrate into the hypertrophy. Correct. And the hypertrophy is anywhere from okay. eight to 12 weeks. Okay. And in the hypertrophy, this is where we're going to move heavier weights. And a lot of people get, get gung-ho here. This is where uh, I see a lot of well-intending coaches and athletes make mistakes where they go into the gym and they get super sore. They think they need to go into, you know, they need to go in and push the weight. Their ride volume drops significantly below four hours. Uh, I would say there's a magical threshold number of around five hours a week that you should aim for. Of riding your bike? Of riding your bike, yep. In this hypertrophy phase, you definitely want to keep the, the bike riding. Through all of this, your bike riding should not drop below four hours a week, unless you are a truly okay. time-crunched athlete and you only have six and a half hours a week. And that's where I was going with saying, okay. I, I didn't do it the last two weeks because I have rollers and I have the old rollers where that's all you have. You have the rubber band and the rollers and nothing else. So you're staring at the wall and balancing okay. I think I made a, a Instagram video at some point of me doing, uh, I wear my sunglasses at night and doing the middle of a two hour roller ride. I was like, I need to make this some fun. So that's what we did. <laughs> so I haven't done that. But what happens when you take that, that riding stimulus away, like many people are doing right now, that's the trend. Put your bike down from September to January and lift heavy stuff. That's the trend. Huh. But our whole point is to get better at the bike. That's literally the whole thing that we're trying to do. So we do need to maintain a, a threshold. And if you're going below the five hours, uh, I would strongly recommend that you're doing high intensity, short duration. So pick up uh, Joe Friel's fa Faster After 50, uh, look at what he's got in there and, and implement whatever makes sense for you. I don't get any money from that. It's just a great resource uh, because it has the right type of intensities that you're going to need. Now, during the hypertrophy phase, it's not the heaviest weight we're going to move. Now think about it. This is, okay. let's take the anatomical adaptation to six weeks. So let's look at a calendar. Actually, I think six weeks will take us to the end of October, if I'm not mistaken, from, from the recording date. Um, so essentially one, two, three, four, five, six, let's call it the end of October. Then we have hypertrophy, which would take us November and December. So hypertrophy sessions are going to take around 65 to 75 minutes because you're going to need to rest between three and five minutes between sets. If you want a muscular adaptation. If you're looking for metabolic or the energy system, sure, do what most cyclists do, do a circuit, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, get your heart rate up, get sweating. But if you're looking for true strength and resiliency and the ability to be a lifelong athlete, then you need to take three to five minutes between your main set. So the way that it works here, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit is, and this is how we're going to tie three and four together, by the way, Joe uh, and Glenn, is this is, you know, we'll do A1, let's say it's a barbell front squat. A2 would be a posture exercise or a corrective exercise. And technically, the stopwatch for our rest period of three to five minutes, as soon as I rack the bar from, from the front rack or the uh, barbell front squat, that's when the timer starts for the rest period. So I'm using this, this exercise time or this rest time to exercise and do a postural or a breathing exercise. That's going to help me see better results and drive my next set of barbell front squats better. 
Can you give us an example? I'm not really getting it, mm -hmm. but what you're saying, this you're resting from your weightlifting and you're doing some postural thing. Like you what? got it. Uh, glad you asked because that's exactly where we're going. <laughs> uh, so let's say, uh, let's take me for example for today. So my workout this morning was barbell front squat, three sets of six and an RPE of seven to eight. Notice I don't have any weights prescribed. I used to have weights prescribed, but I've been so inconsistent in my strength training with the baby. It makes more sense to go based off of what it feels like. So I do a set of six for my barbell front squats, RPE of seven, weight doesn't matter. Feels good, technique is good, it feels right. I'm getting my glutes fired, my feet, like we talked about earlier, spit, spreading the floor. Now it's time for me to rest. As soon as I rack the bar, we'll start our stopwatch, all right? Sound effect, whoop, there we go. Stopwatch started. Now, what can I do with this time? If you think like traditional, you think of the guys that lift heavy stuff in the gym, they finish these really heavy sets, they rack the weight and they sit there and they talk for, hey, Joe, remember when I did this? That's what I used to do, powerlifting. We'd sit there and have a blast while everybody else is like, are they even lifting? But if you want strength adaptations, you need to have these rest periods uh, in order to allow the tissues and energy systems to respond appropriately. So during these three minutes, I could sit there and just scroll through my phone or I can be efficient with my time and do an exercise such as the bretzel. Now, the bretzel is a really great exercise. Uh, it's a breathing exercise and a postural exercise all in one. Uh, let me see if I can find a video. Well, actually, let's just do it this way. I'll send you the video. But imagine me okay. laying on my floor on my back. I'm going to take my right leg. I'm going to bend my knee to 90 degrees. My left leg is straight. And I'm going to turn my right knee and my hip over to the left side. So it kind of creates a P with my lower body. I'm going to take my left hand on top of my right knee and then grab my left leg and do a quad stretch. This is all while laying on my back. From there, I'm doing a... Yeah, a I, I get the pretzel reference. Yeah, okay. And then I take a deep breath in through the nose, deep breath out, and I am using the muscles on my mid-back, my mid and lower traps, which have the, the living daylights beat out of them by riding the bike. I'm activating them to pull my shoulder blade and my torso back towards the ground. So first rep, I get a little bit of cracking and popping, and then it feels really nice. I can feel these muscles opening, glutes are getting a stretch, quads are getting a stretch. This is a postural breathing exercise designed to help my posture release and some of the tight muscles and activate some of the muscles that need to be fired up in our sport. Not recommended if you have lower back pain or discomfort, but that's what I'm doing. So instead of sitting around and hanging out, and by the way, we just finished side number one and I'm at a minute and five seconds. So it took me about 40 seconds for seven breaths. Now I'm just gonna ease back to the starting position and rotate to the other side and go through. So instead of taking the three minutes and hanging out, I'm performing another exercise that's going to help me do the squat better because it's releasing and firing up and opening these muscles that I need to use, as well as allowing my core to be able to kind of activate a little bit. We're getting some stretching here, we're in different positions, things are moving, the breath work is helping getting the ribs to move, the diaphragm is pushing down, my obliques are moving. We're getting all these things to start to activate and move and open, which will allow me to go back to the bar and squat better. So for example, uh, today my first set of squats Again, the, the numbers don't matter, but 70 kilos. That was my first set. And it felt like an RPE of seven. Did my bretzel. We're at two minutes and 20 seconds right now, which is absolutely perfect. I can actually just grab a drink, walk back over to the squat rack, 
All yeah. right, so I'm going to get right underneath the bar. It's just a little bit under, two minutes and 47 seconds. I'm going to get under the bar, and now I'm going to start my second set of back squats. Take the bar off. Wow, that felt really easy. Go back through my bretel. My second set was 70 again, and my last set was 85. So that's a big jump. How do I go from 70 kilos to 85? I'm, I'm a little bit of an outlier, right? So I've been at home locked up for the last 10 days because we had to be. Those were the rules. You got to do two negative tests and you have to wait seven days, whatever else. My squatting the week before was higher than that. So that jump is because my body's like, oh, wow, you're giving us what we need. Your posture is a little bit better. And sometimes you can feel it. Like today I stood up for my first set of breaths and I'm like, wow, oh, I needed that. Whereas just doing the stretch or doing the activity on your own, the activation on its own doesn't have the same effect. Bretzel is something that you like superset in with some of your lifting that you do for hypertrophy purposes. So we actually use these types of exercises uh, regularly throughout the year, right? When we get to max strength, it will also use them. You're using that rest time to do something else. It's not intensive. You're not really lifting up your heart rate that much, but you're doing something that's going to help your posture or your movement patterns to be able to do better for the main exercise. The hypertrophy itself is going to happen in the the one exercises. So the way I, we write programming here at HVT is you have dynamic warm-up, breathing dynamic warm-up, A1, or the A's, the B's, the C's, the D's, and occasionally E. The A will usually have two or three exercises. So A1 is your first, that's your big linchpin that you're working on in your programming. So for many cyclists, it would be a squat or a, a pull. Um, such as a seated row uh, or a deadlift. B, B1 would be the second big linchpin that you have. And then C1 would be whatever would go with that of the fundamental five plus one that will help kind of polish off what you've been working on. So oftentimes we'll do back uh, with our, our deadlifts and we'll do, you know, chest with, with squats per se. And this is the hypertrophy stage still. Still the hypertrophy phase, yes. So the structure okay. then, all that changes when you go to max strength, which is stage number three, all that changes are the, the perceived exertions and the weights that you're using. So that structure stays the same. So we have anatomical adaptations, hypertrophy, and now we're up to max strength. And we just went through what does the structure of the actual workout look like in hypertrophy? And maybe you can tell us what the difference is. I mean, I understand what the difference in the goal is between hypertrophy and max strength, but what's the difference in like the workout? Is it heavier weights and fewer reps or, you know, that kind of thing? Great question. And the answer is both. So th the structure of the workouts remain roughly the same, right? So we've got hypertrophy, which will be anywhere from three to six sets of five to 10 repetitions. That's scientific literature. You look at them, and actually hypertrophy goes all the way up to 15. But most bodybuilders, if you if you tell them they're doing sets of 12, they're going to look at you and laugh. Like, I do sets of 5 to 10, bro. Um, so hypertrophy is anywhere from 5 to 15 repetitions. Some textbooks say 8 to 15. Make of it what you will, but let's say 8 to 15. That is programming the body. That's like me writing an app for your body saying, I want muscular hypertrophy. Just before we move into max strength, which is the next phase, during this phase, it occurs during mid to late base. So you still need to be riding your bike. 
And if you're riding your bike at least five yeah. to eight hours a week, you're going to create some interference as a, uh, uh, for the muscle building, which is okay. We want that. People say, oh, but the mTOR is not going to be as good and I, I can't get as strong. No, you're still going to get strong, but we want to get strong for the bike. How much weight you put on the bar doesn't matter. It's how you move. Again, coming back to anatomical adaptations, the posture, the breathing, and the true core strength. And this is where we get into phase number three, which is max strength. So we've had anatomical adaptation. Yeah. We learned how to move. We learned what it feels like. We've gone through the fundamental five plus one movements. Now we went through hypertrophy where we're starting to lift medium heavy things, RPE of six, seven, and we're starting to get a little bit of fatigue. Like you're finishing your workout saying, okay, that was, that was a good workout. And the next morning for an hour or two, you, you feel it a little bit. After two hours, you feel great. That's a sign of a great workout. You wake up the next morning and go, oh, yeah, I feel that a little bit. And before you're done with your second coffee of the day or late morning snack, you don't feel anything anymore. Not even a, a tiny bit. The max strength phase is where your riding volume is going and intensity is going to start to come up and your strength training, the structure stays the same as hypertrophy, but now we're going to have A1, B1, and that's usually about it for, for serious cyclists. And those are going to be heavy sets. And heavy is relative. So for some athletes, it'll be an RPE of seven or eight if their technique tends to fail. So for deadlifts, a lot of cyclists love deadlifts, except they just can't keep their shoulder blades locked to their upper torso, keeping the shoulder blades back and down and the chest up and squeezing oranges under their armpits. They can't do it with the heavier weight. You see the butt comes up, the hands go forward, and then you know they're kind of lifting their butt and then their head comes up after. Awful technique. So we stick at seven or eight, but the sets and repetitions will be, be between one and four repetitions because we're looking for max strength. And your intent during this time, whether you have 20 pounds or 2,000 pounds on that bar, is you're giving every ounce of energy that you can to move that dang thing. And that's another mistake a lot of people make. They just load up the bar and they go, this is heavy. Mm, mm. No, no, you need to, weightlifting, strength training is violent. It's controlled violence. You can't just say, oh, it's a heavy thing. Yeah. Ah! Oh yeah, I did it. No, 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 no. You want to crush the bar bend the bar. You want to come out of that thing and not from dropping the weight as it bent, but because of how hard you were bending the bar. Every ounce of your energy has to come into that bar. Now you said RPE was like seven or eight. So I guess what you mean is I'm putting all of my energy into lifting it, but I could have done another rep and I did. Yes. That's called reps in reserve. And for masters athletes, really important. Uh, so I can't remember if it was okay. here or somewhere else, but I mentioned uh, my uh, mentors. Uh, let me look last time. Uh, I think I think it was here uh, where they said, you know, over the age of 50, they're not worried about the days that they go into the gym and feel bad. They're worried about the days they go into the gym and feel good because they're going to do too much. Yeah, you mentioned that last yeah, time. Yeah, so the master's athlete, we want sevens and eights, especially for the first two years of your year-round strength training. We don't need nines and tens. You can get ridiculously strong and decrease your risk of injury by doing it in this fashion. So instead of doing two sets of three at an RPE of nine, we're doing four sets of three at an RPE of seven to eight. So that last set, you're like, yeah, I'm under fatigue, but the load is lower. And you also have done so much work. By the time you get there, you're like, you know what? I've already done three and a half sets. I don't need to do the last one. And that that allows you to have that better 
um, subconscious awareness of where your limits are, staying within that circle of competency of what your body can actually handle. So this is where most people drop the weights is they just go into the gym, they jump right into hypertrophy. That's what most uh, strength training programs out there, by the way, are. I looked at training peaks, the most popular ones before we jumped on here. Yeah. And every single one is hypertrophy. Three sets of 10, four sets of 10, three sets of eight, four sets of eight, three sets of 15. That is hypertrophy. That is literally hypertrophy in what every single cyclist and triathlete, if you said to them before, hey, we're gonna do some hypertrophy. What? No, I'm an endurance athlete. And the coaches somehow came up with sets of 10 to 15 are going to help you because they're endurance. No, it's not. Endurance is sets of 25 to 50. Can you imagine uh. doing two to four sets of 25 to 50 with one minute rest in between? I, I can't even do that with an empty barbell, right? So that's true endurance. So these yeah. sets of 10 to 15, and this is where we need to be careful about following the trends. And, and I want to tie together here because we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, just one important thing, the posture and the core strength, these were items number three and four that, that you mentioned at the beginning here, Joe, the posture yeah. is tied into everything we do. Everything joint position dictates muscle function. If your joint okay. is not set in the right position, the muscles can't do their job efficiently or correctly for the exact way that they're designed. So going into the gym and not working on these things during anatomical adaptation and hypertrophy, like we talked about the front squat and the bretzel, you're yeah. essentially, it, it's rolling a boulder up a hill. <laughs> Either it's going to roll back on you or it's going to roll down the other side and then you have to push it up the other side. It's, it's an exercise yeah. of futility. So what we really need to do is make sure that we understand, unlike what the media have made you believe, the core is actually all of the muscles between your neck, your elbows, and your knees. And those two things, post great posture and true core strength, tie together everything that we just talked about. Anatomical adaptation, hypertrophy, max strength. And if you do those things well, when you get to that last phase of, of conversion to sport-specific strength, this is where your ride volume goes way, way up. This is April, May, June in Pittsburgh when it gets really nice. And then all of a sudden, you know, daylight saving times comes and the cycling angels are uh, blowing their trumpets and the halos are out, you know, and you go out and you do, you know, two hours in the evening or the morning, three days a week and during the week. And then your weekend rides are now six and a half, seven hours, uh, or at least one of them, depending on what your family obligations are. But there's a gap there, right? So we talked about anatomical adaptations is September to mid-October, end of October, Hypertrophy is November, December, January, and then max strength is middle of January to March. There's like two months missing. What do we do? Is that the conversion to no. sport? No. You either go back to hypertrophy again, or you stick with the max strength a little bit longer, but you do much shorter workouts. And this is where a lot of people get lost. And, and, and I, I get it. Right. I get it because it's very hard to like, oh, but I just went through that. I'm in max strength. I want to do more. And then you're like, well, my body feels beat up and I can't move the same weights or my biking is really suffering. So do I do max strength and keep suffering on the bike and not seeing results or do I dial back? And, and you have to make the decision for you. Then through the rest of the, the spring up until June, July, we want to make sure that we're in conversion to sport. And those are going to look like a, a bastardization of hypertrophy and max strength. So you may do two weeks where you're doing heavier weights for two sets of three. You know, you do a warm up set of 10, do your corrective, 
Then you come back, you do a set of three at an RPE of eight, do your corrective, do another set of three at an RPE of eight, and then move on. And that's where, as a master's athlete, all of the research is out there. It's very clear. Strength training helps build bone density, uh, muscle mass. But if you take three or four months off during the year to just ride your bike, you have literally wasted your time in the gym. You've now lost all of those adaptations. It's it's very similar uh, to what we have as far as metabolic efficiency, uh, metabolic uh, development, except it's not quite as fast. We can keep our strength. I, I'm a great example. You know, my last set was 85. Didn't touch a weight for two two weeks, aside from a, a 16 kilo kettlebell. It can it can come back. I know I'm going to feel it tomorrow. I could have done more. I could have easily done my weight from two weeks ago, but that would be dumb because I'm going to be sore for three days. And this is where a lot of cyclists, yeah. the master cyclists, year-round strength training is an absolute must. So once you get through those first three stages, maybe hold off on the conversion to sports-specific and go back through hypertrophy for March, April, May, and then max strength for June, July. The great thing about, about max strength workouts is you can be in and out of the gym in 35 minutes. That's when you lift heavy things up and put them down and you go ride your bike. And, and people will ask you, it happened with one of the riders younger, uh, he's in his 30s, um, you know, people are asking him, how did you get so fast on the bike? He's like, well, I'm still lifting heavy. They're like, you're what? It's July, you're ruining yourself. He's like, you just asked me, how did I get so strong? I'm literally giving you the answer and you're yelling at me, telling me I'm wrong. Um, so this is where as master's athletes, yeah. it's even more important. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not really getting the conversion to sports specific. What does that mean? I, I've been lifting weights. I built some muscle. I, well, I learned some skills, some movement skills. I built up some muscle. I then worked on lifting heavier, uh, I guess, getting some neuromuscular adaptation to that. And now, obviously, what I have to do is I have to learn how to use that strength in my sport. So how do I do that? Skills training. Learning how to work the bike as a figure eight as you're going up a climb. Learning how to sprint and actually move the bike during a sprint. Uh, learning how to corner, learning how to brake. Okay, so this is not in the gym. This is bike handling skills that I'm not like doing something to specifically use my glutes that I worked on. I'm just going to use my glutes on my bike learning how to ride my bike more skillfully. Exactly. And it can be done during your intervals or your group rides. So the town sign sprint at the end, when you're tired, think about the core training, the posture training. I'm tired. I'm rounded forward on the bars. I know I am. Lift my chest. Think about a deadlift. Grip the handlebars at the end with every ounce of energy I can, and then rip the bike. You know, 500 bucks. No, no, no. To whoever rips their handlebars off their bike. Please don't do that. That would be an epic fail. But, you know, taking the skills that you're learning in the weight room, and applying them to the bike. And that's the last piece that I have uh, for today. And that is, you know, we talked about core being everything between the neck, the elbows, and the knees. For a master's athlete, when you're strength training year round, a large part of what you need during the summer peak riding season is to do something different, just enough to maintain things in balance for your body. So instead of having the pendulum swing all the way to the right, you're now going halfway to the right so that you're not going down that that path to uh, dysfunction and poor tissue qualities so much that every year it's just slowly creeping and you're getting that, that you know, creep over three years where like all of a sudden, where did that bump on the back of my neck come from? And you look over the last couple of summers pictures and you're like, oh, I can actually see that happening. So the conversion to, to specific on the bike 
is just practicing the skills you're learning. And it comes back to the anatomical adaptation. Learn the mind-muscle connection. Learn what it feels like. And then when you're out on the bike, this is where it's worth it to hire a local good skills coach for on the bike, even once a year in the spring. Say, hey, I'd like to hire you for an hour to, or an hour and a half to take me out and just run me through some skills that you think that I need. Bunny hopping, power slides, cornering, braking, how to choose a gear selection, how to change your gears. I can't tell you how many rides that I've been out on and group rides where guys and ladies who have been riding for 10 plus years are still dropping their chain on climbs. Like that's, it's a skill. It's not just, oh, I need to change it. Where in your pedal stroke? How are you weighting the pedals? These are things that can really help you. And it's frustrating because they're very strong. They're leading. They go to change their, their gear. They feel like they have to let up completely on the pedals. Down goes the chain because they feel the people coming up. That talk about enjoyment from your strength training carrying over to the bike. Wouldn't it be nice to be at the front, learn that skill of how to change that gear or climb out of the saddle? And then people ask you, like, how did you get so fast over the winter? Meanwhile, you haven't been riding your bike as much over the winter, but you've gotten stronger because you've learned those skills on the bike and also on how to move your body. Interesting. So one of the things that I thought you would talk about, and maybe you have in, in this conversion to sports specific, but the question was always why does it appear when people do studies that people do essentially weightlifting and they get stronger? They actually get stronger as measured by their ability to lift heavier weights. But when they get on the bike, they're not any faster. And I thought one of the, one of the issues was going to be that their leg got stronger or their glute got stronger or their lat got stronger, but their core didn't get stronger. And, and they also don't have, they didn't update their coordination of their core muscles to the stronger limbs. So they're sort of discombobulated a little bit on the bike and they're losing some of that greater power that they had developed. Is there some truth in that? A hundred percent. Yeah. And this is where we're losing the forest for the trees. And I think we spoke in our last uh, episode here uh, about how, you know, if you're following the science, you're easily, you know, 10, I say 15 years behind what the best are doing for cycling in particular. Uh, yeah. It ties into that where this is where the core, and I kind of inter tried to interlace it a little bit, everything between your neck, your elbows, and your knees. Remember how long we spent yeah. talking about anatomical adaptation yeah. and the skill and learning how your, your body moves, turning those glutes on, the string between the toes? That's what it's all about. But everybody is confused yeah. right now by well-meaning uh, research showing that, well, if you go into the gym and you lift weights, you'll get stronger on the bike. You put out more power. But it's so segmented. Uh, they focus, of course, on the lower body. They don't look at how the upper body is moving. And I know I, can, I can't even count anymore how many cyclists I've seen that have that bob and they're putting out power. Well, that, that breaks you down. It's, there's no coordination. So your verbiage there, Joe, is spot on of the coordination is lacking. You're not, they're going into the gym. Yeah, you got stronger. You went from squatting the bar to 135 pounds. Congratulations. You're no faster on the bike after the month of April because you added, didn't learn the skill. You didn't make the mind muscle connection of when I'm doing this, how do I feel my midsection interacting with my glutes and keeping me stable as I go through? And that's where that conversion yeah. to sport also helps where you're taking that. But that's really what's, what strength training is all about for cycling. I have a presentation 
next week in, in, uh, at the science and cycling conference. And that's the, it's the th- three mistakes that will cause you to lose, uh, your results from, from strength training. And this is one of the, the big ones is you're looking at the weight on the bar or the resistance used. You're not looking at how that's being produced. We can get better results for our athletes by teaching them how to move the weight well, then uh-huh. way faster and way better and more sustainable than adding weight to the bar. That external resistance is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, Dan John has talked about this, how his best shot put came when he was squ- squatting the least. When he was squatting the most, his shot put actually sucked. It was some of his worst throws. Huh. And it's training through these ranges of motion that you actually need, number one. And as cyclists, th- we didn't get into that because that's that's three other episodes in and of itself of you know how do you know the range of motion to go through. Uh, but essentially, it's whatever range of motion you have great control and you're getting the movement from the right places. Yeah. And that's an under that underscores everything. And that ties into the posture. Joint position dictates muscle function. So where the joint is in space will either let the right muscles work or not. And your core. Everything between your neck, your elbows, and the knees needs to be in the right position or a good enough position to contribute as it needs to to either create that stiffness to control force and motion or to create yeah, that motion. Right. Uh, and that's that's right. where we're missing. So those those research articles, Joe, that you're talking about. They're fantastic in helping us drive forward the, the fact that strength training is important, but we're missing that it's not the weight or the resistance that matters. It's what are you able to do on the bike and how quickly can you recover off the bike from those efforts? Yeah. And so I guess the last thing then is going to be this business of how am I still riding my bike if I'm tired from lifting weights? I mean, what what is the philosophy there? How, I mean, how am I keeping myself from being wrecked from lifting weights so that I can ride my bike or, you know, depending on the sequence of things, keeping myself from riding the bike so much so that when I go into the gym, I, you know, I'm dead and I don't have any energy for lifting the weights. Fantastic question. How do I get all of this done? Check your ego out the door. I mean, uh, Tony Gentlecorn and I, and I spoke about this on my podcast early on, I think it was episode five or six. I don't remember. Uh, but your perceived exertions for your overall weight training sessions should be five, sixes, and sevens. And most cyclists are going nine or 10. They're, they're going, you know, pedal to the metal. They are going as hard as they can because that's what we're taught in our sport, right? The harder you go, the better it is. Your strength training sessions, 70% of the time, that was a good workout. 10% of the time, awful workout. 10% of the time, amazing workout. And the other 10%, meh. What we want to look for out of our strength training is to keep in perspective that it's here to support our riding, not the other way around. Our riding isn't supporting our strength training. So all you need to do when you change from the weight on the bar being your guiding light to how did I feel today? So I'm I'm really happy with how it went today. Like I was, you know, that last set of 85 was a little bit, I, I could have gone heavier again, but it was like, wow, I'm moving better. And I walked out and even, you know, one of the guys was working out there kind of looked at me like, that's it. Like, yeah, I could do another set. It was easy. So what? It's your attitude in the gym. It needs to be a completely different long-term mindset as opposed to short-term. And that's what taking as a master's athlete, that year-round strength training of, yeah, it's hypertrophy. I got max strength and then maybe another hypertrophy. And then I've got the riding season. When you change that around, you can be like George. George is 56. He just said it all time, two minute PR power, all time. The guy has been riding for like 18 years. 
And he did it with the strength training because we changed that mentality of I just need to put weight on the bar to how am I moving? He's still not moving the same weights he did as a PR, but his bike performance is getting better. I think he's somewhere around 70% yeah. is all-time PR for squatting and bench pressing. Set when he was working with a personal trainer who was like, yeah, this is bike specific. And the trainer was right about the bench press. I just talked about this with the other Joe. The trainer was right. The bench press is 100% related to the bike. But the wrong thing is the weight on the bar matters. It's how you move. So when you focus yeah. on that, you're okay leaving the gym with an RPE of six. Within the exercise itself, yeah, you get to seven, but you're not leaving railed. The second part of it uh, and the last part is making sure your nutrition is matching it. Uh, cyclists as a whole, we tend to eat way too many carbohydrates. Uh, we're pretty good about fats for the most part, uh, but we avoid protein. You know, uh, This is one of the things I absolutely love about Dr. Stacy Sims. She talks about, hey, you've got to get at least 1.8 grams of protein per kilo. I've been saying 1.6 and people have been looking at me like, I'm going to turn into a bodybuilder. Like, no, it's going to stabilize your blood glucose. It's going to help you feel fuller longer. It's going to help you to be able to digest and absorb more of the micronutrients. And it's going to give the building blocks that you need. When you start eating yeah. like a, a, a true performance human being, not even athlete, human being where you're having healthy fats and you're having proteins and you're having vegetables uh, dark leafy greens and fresh produce as the staple and the foundation. And then you put protein on top of that. And then you add the carbohydrates as needed. Now you're eating like a performance human being. And that's, you know, I'm not a dietitian, not a nutritionist. This just tends to be the theme that we see. Uh, high, high produce, uh, high protein, sure. uh, and, and healthy fats. And then the carbohydrates are there uh, to supplement essentially. Well, all right. I think we covered what we wanted to cover and we're out of time. So that worked out. So Menachem, was there anything else that uh, you wanted to put on top and, and please mention again how people can find you? This should be fun. It's an adventure. You know, we're, we're all old enough here that we should know better than trying to shortcut and, and have that ego. Some of us need that, right? I'll be honest, there are days where I totally go in and there's another coach there in particular. And I'm like, I need to have a good workout today. We, we all have that competitive streak in us, but we want to do the least amount of work to get the best result. That's it. The le it's, it's, it's laziness. Return on investment. Yeah. Laziness uh, bordering on sloth is what Charlie Munger calls it, right? So the same thing applies. We want to do just enough in the gym that we're getting results and no more than that. The last part is uh, that you asked, uh, you guys can find me on YouTube. Uh, we have uh, fresh new videos every Wednesday, except possibly this one, because I didn't realize that it was running out this week. I thought we had one more week, but we scrapped that one. Uh, so HV training, and then the Human Vortex Training website of humanvortextraining.com. Excellent. Well, Menachem, thank you again. With that, I'll say thanks again and have a good one. Thank you. Thank you, Menachem. Good stuff. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion with Menachem Brody on how to integrate strength training into the annual training calendar to get faster and stronger on the bike without negatively impacting bike performance in the meantime. And thanks to Menachem for taking some time to share his expertise. You can find more information about Menachem in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address in the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.